Hello, Nikki. Hello. Oh, Nikki, I'm in great trouble. You must help me. You see, I... <laughs> well, I'm a married man. And so, you see, if I... Uh, wait a minute, wait a minute. To cut a long story short, you're crazy about another girl. She's the leader of a girl's band in a beer garden. I've just come from there. Oh, Nikki, Nikki, I've got to meet her. I... <laughs> Nikki, Nikki, look. You come to the beer garden with me, huh? I see, I see. You're afraid to have supper with her alone. Right. And that's why you want me alone. Right. And after supper, I go home and you don't go home. Right. And you think I would lend myself to such an intrigue? Let's go. Yeah, my friend. Welcome to Season 2 of How Would Lubitsch Do It? A podcast in which we discuss the works of director Ernst Lubitsch, one film at a time. It's February 1927, and today Kristen Thompson joins us to discuss The Loves of the Pharaoh. Come visit ErnstCast.com if you'd like show notes, resources as to where you might find the films we'll be discussing, or just to say hi. Hello, everyone. We're here with Kristen Thompson, who really needs no introduction. Her work, whether on your own, Kristen, or co-authored with David Bordwell, it's impossible to overstate the impact it has had on me and my whole generation of film colleagues. So it is a pleasure to have you on this podcast. Is there anything you'd like the audience to know about yourself? You know, who are you? What do you do? And what convinced you to come on this very obscure Canadian podcast about a very obscure film from Lubitsch's late German period? Well, I started out at the University of Iowa studying theater as a major and took my first film course with Dudley Andrew, which was lucky for me because obviously he's one of the top people in the field, but it was a very young field at the time. There were hardly any programs for getting an advanced degree in film studies, but I took some courses, got my MA in film studies. It was a very small program, so I felt I had to go someplace else and get some other exposure to professors say, at the University of Wisconsin, which is where I ended up. And David also moved up to Madison from Iowa. This is 1973 we're talking about, so a long time ago. I got my PhD in film studies, and at that point we were asked to write one of the books that you probably have read, which is Film Art, An Introduction. Oh, yes. Yeah, that was in 1977 we started writing that. That was more or less my career. I never got a tenure-track position I've done a few guest stints at other universities, but I ended up being a professional writer and having a great deal of time to do other projects in between revising film art over and over and over. And one thing I had always been interested in was ancient Egypt, sort of in a very small way, but I wanted to go to Egypt once, I thought. So in 1992, I took a tour of Egypt and got hooked. And my one tour of Egypt turned into another one the next year and so on and on. And I sort of, in the course of the 90s, turned myself into an Egyptologist, taking tours, reading, going to conferences. I started giving conference papers. And in 2000, I ended up getting invited to join a dig in Egypt. So I've been working at a site called Tel El Amarna in Middle Egypt ever since. And I'm currently writing a big book on royal statuary from our site. So I've been busy with that for 20 years now. <laughs> But uh, I assume that's one reason you asked me to do this specific film, Dust Five, Dust Pharaoh. Anyway, as to the Lubitsch connection, like so many people, I've always admired Lubitsch and found some of his films just hilarious and brilliant. And I gave a paper on Lubitsch way back in 1983 at a conference in East Anglia that Thomas Elsacer organized. 
And then in 1999, I got invited to do a seminar at the University of Stockholm for a month. Any topic relating to silent film was what they told me. And naturally, I thought, hey, I could do Lubitsch. I mean, if I could do anything, I could do Lubitsch. And the premise of the course was that Lubitsch was considered the master of the cinema in Germany after World War I. And then he goes to Hollywood and he becomes the master of the cinema in Hollywood. People admire him tremendously. And I thought it would be interesting to contrast the two national cinemas in terms of the style and technology that existed at the time and see how those two countries were different and how Lubitsch's films reveal that. And I came on this, well, of course, you and I met some years ago, but uh, I came on this podcast because who doesn't want to talk about Lubitsch? Well, thank you so much for coming on. And as a part of my readings for this podcast, I read the book that came out of that project, which was called Air Lubitsch Goes to Hollywood, German and American Film After World War One," which I believe is on open access on JSTOR. And I've read more books on Lubitsch than I care to count for this show. And this is one of the best. <laughs> I can't recommend it enough. You've managed to approach it from a formal angle, this question of how Lubitsch evolved as an artist. And it is so in-depth and so comprehensive. So I cannot recommend it enough. Well, thank you. I'll make sure to put it in the show notes, a way to get to it. I think part of what moved me to get you onto this specific episode was that you have the a very unusual Venn diagram of interest <laughs> that fits in this, in this film. I think we can start with the Egyptology question, because this film is set in ancient Egypt. It stars Emil Yannings as Pharaoh Aminis. And so it has some heavy connections to ancient Egypt. It's the second Lupich film in this retrospective after The Eyes of the Mummy Ma, which is a little less comprehensive in its connection to Egypt. That film's a bit more of a lark. But I'd love to talk about how this film interfaces with both ancient Egypt, but especially how this film fits into the kind of Egypt craze that was sweeping Europe and North America in the early 1920s. I guess I should say that Egyptology developed in the late 19th century. It really was a situation before then that uh, adventurers were going down into Egypt and finding whatever they could and bringing it back to museums without necessarily looking at the context or, well, knowing how to read hieroglyphs or anything like that. It was really in the 1880s that sort of scientific Egyptology developed and you got real archaeologists going to Egypt and they would bring back their finds and have exhibitions of them. So people would go to these exhibitions. They were seeing stuff that was beautiful, but not necessarily something that they understood the context of. But Egypt was influencing a lot of people. The term Egyptomania has been used. And really in England, especially in the late 19th century, Egyptomania was hitting. And you see buildings that imitate Egyptian buildings and so forth. And I assume the same thing was probably happening in Germany to a lesser extent. But in a way, the timing of Das Vibe des Pharaoh is kind of weird because the real frenzy about ancient Egypt started right about the time the film was made. And Lubitsch and his screenwriters did not have much access to what really excited the world about Egypt, which was, of course, the same year this film was made, was the discovery of Tadalkaman's tomb. And that was publicized so extensively and the treasures were shown off. And that was really what I think made the whole world get fascinated by Egyptology. And of course, we just had the centenary of that. And that was I must say, a bit of a trial because everybody was lecturing on Tadankman and all the exhibitions were on Tadankman. But so he missed that. And of course, everybody thinks of the famous painted bust of Nefertiti, which is in Berlin. 
but it wasn't on public display. It was discovered in 1912, but it was sort of hidden in the Boda Museum in Berlin for a decade or so. And it wasn't put on public view until 1924. And again, there was this huge interest in it because it's so gorgeous. But I think a lot of the things that people knew about Egypt before Lubitsch made his film were kind of random, and it's reflected in the film. I tried to figure out what period it's supposed to be set in, and based on the design and the events of the story and so forth. And I think it's just a mishmash of different periods. I mean, the statuary in the I guess the royal palace is basically late 18th dynasty, reign of Amenhotep III, and the giant pylons and so forth, design of those enormous sets is basically much later than that. It's Ptolemaic. So it's not trying to be authentic in the sense that the costumes are all of the late 18th dynasty and so forth. In terms of the story, of course, it doesn't make sense at all. I mean, it's crazy, but... (laughs) (laughs) But there was a time when there was a war between the Nubians, who are called Ethiopians in the film. The Nubians invaded Egypt and indeed conquered it and ruled Egypt for one dynasty. That's the 25th dynasty or Nubian dynasty. But that's much later. That's about a thousand years later. So, you know, there's no real attempt to be authentic here. I think the set designer was very interested in Egypt and he did look at photos and did copy real buildings but they're not appropriate buildings for some of the design elements. And the costume just make no sense at all. <laughs> they have almost no authenticity about them. It feels almost like Lubitsch is approaching this the same way he would just about any culture, which is that each one is a funny hodgepodge mishmash of both places and especially times, right? Where, you know, he sets a film in Vienna and it's impossible to tell when it is. He makes the biopic of Catherine the Great and there's cars. <laughs> It's interesting when applied, though, to a culture that is very different than his usual kind of milieu. I mean, supposedly this was a film he made because he wanted to display the fact that he could make a real huge epic that would be like Hollywood. And it certainly is very much like Hollywood in that sense and probably succeeded, although I think we're already talks to try to get Lubitsch to Hollywood before this film was made. So anyway, it's certainly more grandiose than his earlier epics. The number of extras in some of those scenes is absolutely amazing. And the sets are huge. None of them are models, of course. They're real-sized sets. It really disarmed me to see how much of a scale-up this was from everything before, even like Anna Boleyn, which is the film in this series directly preceding it, is comparatively like a chamber drama. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And I think this film was made, if I'm not mistaken, in between his first and second visits to America. Yeah, he had been to America before he made this. And Well, he was somebody who was very interested in technology and style, and he obviously was well aware of what they were doing in Hollywood in terms of much more sophisticated lighting equipment and cameras Mm. and studio buildings. And this was his first chance to actually work that way because he was working in a studio that had been partially financed by Paramount. And some of the lighting equipment and some of the cameras they used were actually imported from America. So Lubitsch was using this more sophisticated material, and obviously he really took to it very well. He understood what American directors were doing with sophisticated arc lights, and he mastered it very quickly. I mean, this is a film that's completely different in appearance than his earlier films like Annabelle Lynn. So it's very striking how quickly he changed to being a Hollywood director, even when he was still in Berlin. And Die Flamme carries that over. It's obviously more a chamber drama, but he's using the same kinds of lighting techniques and so forth in that. And 
continuity editing and so forth. I mean, you could really believe that those films were made in the States. We can probably get into the history of World War One and interwar German Hollywood cross-pollination in a second. But one thing that really struck me about this film in comparison to the last film is not just the fact that yeah, this is his first film in a dark studio. It's a departure from the Tempelhof Studios that he was largely filming at. And especially the exteriors are way different as a result because... I saw that same Tempelhof exterior set reused ad nauseum. You point this out. I noticed this upon watching Madame Dubarry, like something clicked in my head, but I was very gratified that it was confirmed when I read in your book. Probably the best example of this is Seville from Carmen is Paris from, at least there's a certain uh, town square that's reused almost exactly. They just put up new facades and they blocked out the trees with some flats in the back. Yeah, they were doing a lot of recycling and this was all built from scratch for Des Five Des Faro. These giant pylons and so forth are, yeah, not just redressed earlier sets. And then they shot the exteriors, both the the battle scenes and the quarry scenes at a huge sand quarry that they rented. And again, ordinarily, well, you see it in where there's some sort of gentle sandbanks and then a couple of artificial palm trees stuck in them. There's some of that in this film too, but it really is done on a mammoth scale, much more than anything else he ever did, really. Anya, my wife, while watching this with me, I remarked that the Saharan sand dunes look a little less majestic than usual. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It really does not look like Egypt at all. But, well, <laughs> they did their best. And it's pretty impressive nonetheless. I'm going to stop myself from like gushing over the lighting, which I loved, but I'd love to step back like a decade and talk about the evolution in geopolitics and German's place in the international film industry that led us to this point when Ernst Lubitsch in 1921 is finally making a movie in a dark studio with a new lighting pattern, basically. Let's go back to even like the outbreak of World War I. This is a real turning point in German film history when Germany cuts off imports from America in terms of film. Yeah, they were letting imports in during the first part of the war because they didn't have a very big film industry. But as of late 1916, they put on a complete ban of importation of foreign films, except from Denmark, which was neutral. And they had investments in Denmark. But yeah, suddenly they were faced with a market that they could supply themselves rather than watching Hollywood films and French films and so forth flood over it. And so you get the rise of UFA, the Universum Film Acting Gesellschaft, which was the big company for the rest of the silent period. And yeah, they started building studios. And then when inflation came in, it became advantageous to put your money into real estate. And so they build these giant studios and so forth. With In the case of the studio you mentioned, where Des Five Des Faro was filmed, they had American money, which of course was not in hyperinflation. So they were able to take hard currency instead of the horrible devalued German currency, and they could buy or rent these big backlots, big studios, hire obviously hundreds of extras for very little. And yeah, this was when the German film industry grew up. And I think it really would have been much more successful internationally if there hadn't been the resentment after the war. The English, the French, the American markets were supposedly going to be totally closed off to German films. It was not a good time for Germany to try to expand internationally. Fortunately, that fell apart within a few years. And Lubitsch was, in fact, very instrumental in that because his film, Madame du Barry, which was renamed Passion in the United States, was the first German film shown in America. And it was extremely successful. And Caligari was shown in France. And that was very successful. And suddenly the boycott of German films fell apart. And 
you get most of Lubitsch's big films, not the small comedies, but the big films get imported to the United States. And Lubitsch is a great asset to the German film industry as a whole as a result. He helped break that embargo. And this had a profound impact, this period where Germany was isolated in terms of its development, because you had a certain way of visualizing films, right? Everything from continuity to lighting, to production design, to performances that, you know, was in vogue in the early 1910s. And once Germany cut itself out from America, those two, Hollywood and Berlin, basically, diverged significantly. What did Hollywood filmmaking look like as it evolved in the 14 to 18 period? And how did German filmmaking not fail to align, but how did the two not align on that? Well, in the United States, you were seeing the development of what came to be known as continuity editing, which was basically not shooting a scene in one shot from far back or just maybe cutting into a shot of two people standing looking at each other and talking. But the scene would be broken up into an establishing shot and then closer shots of the characters and then even closer shots of their expressions as they talked or listened, reacted to things. That was a big change because all over Europe, really, in Russia, scenes tended to be acted out in some cases in single shots where the characters were moved around in very complex staging. And it's wrong, I think, to say that it's primitive, but it was just, it's very different. David calls it the tableau style of staging, where you have characters moving around, blocking each other and then revealing each other and so forth. Whereas continuity editing was much more aimed at guiding your attention to exactly what was important in the scene. And if somebody's reacting to what they hear in a very violent way, you get a cut in to show that. And that's what you concentrate on. So with editing, by the end of the war, essentially the continuity editing system that we know today was there. They had it down and it gradually got into European filmmaking after the war. But that was a tremendous development that happened when people weren't looking, in effect, when the Germans certainly were not seeing what was going on. And as to lighting, you mentioned dark studios. Earlier in the teens, they were shooting either outdoors, just in locations, or on platforms, or in studios that had glass walls. They looked like giant greenhouses. And in the course of the 1910s, you get what I mentioned as the more sophisticated lighting equipment introduced arc lights and big spotlights that had been invented for the war, but which were quickly picked up by Hollywood. And they could light in very dramatic ways. They could use the big spotlights out of doors at night. Before that, usually night scenes were shot in daytime and then were tinted blue so you could know that it was night. But then they started shooting night scenes out of doors. They started using what's called three-point lighting, which is essentially a bright key light, which put in sort of obliquely from the side. And then so that you don't have deep shadows on the opposite side of, say, a face, they put in what's called fill light. So that's the second point of lighting, which would be cast on the side of the character's head and cast on the set so you could see the set. But the key light was lighting the most important thing in the scene. And then they also started using backlight. They would put lamps up on tops of the sets at the back and shine them down into the set from behind. And that was very good for them because, say, a blonde actress would suddenly glow because the light was coming through her hair. That's sort of when they invented glamour photography. And you'll see that constantly used in Hollywood from that point on, especially in black and white films. It really is much more sophisticated than what they were doing in Germany, which was using older arc lamps and just 
putting the light into the scene and letting shadows fall on the set and letting parts of people's face go into darkness. And as I point out in the book, quite often when people move into the foreground as they're exiting, they go completely dark because there's no light being cast on that particular part of the set. So Lubitsch picks up on this very quickly. He's able to use this American equipment at the studio where Das Weibes Pharaoh is shot. And when you see these films after you've seen his earlier films, the look of these shots is just so different. It's quite amazing. And it looks like American film style, three-point lighting, editing. He hasn't got continuity editing completely down in this, but he is cutting into the important actions of the scene and breaking it up into a whole series of shots. It was almost shocking to see the lighting because Theodore Sparkle is the cinematographer on this and on most of Lubitsch's German stuff since, I believe, I Don't Want to Be a Man. And up until this point, there's always been a couple of ticks. One is that the dark zone, which is very apparent whenever a character comes near the camera. But you also have the other effect of having a lot of hard sources near the camera, which is that when characters are photographed against backgrounds, they have a habit of casting four to six symmetrical shadows. Mm-hmm hard Looney Tunes cutouts on the wall. And that was such a tick that I'd gotten used to it in this kind of very almost presentational style of lighting where it's very functional. It's about making sure that the set is evenly lit. Then suddenly it almost just feels like Lubitsch and Sparkle had, it's like this whole world is opened of using basically what John Alton in Painting with Light would call the theory of illumination. It predates him, but this is where I encountered it, which is the idea that objects when lit obliquely reveal their three-dimensionality, right? So suddenly this film feels three-dimensional in a way that nothing up to this point has, for Lubitsch at least. Absolutely. I mean, you've described it very well, I think. Especially the backlighting is apparent here because you get these figures who are against fairly dark sets in the back. Mm -hmm. And they're fairly dark themselves. They're not being lit very brightly from the front. But the backlighting just outlines them in a little sort of glow. And they stand out so much against these dark settings in the back, even though they are themselves dark. And some of these shots are pretty dark. But you can always see exactly what you need to see because it's being lit from different directions. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of interplay with faces, right? Where Yennings is often lit with this almost chiaroscuro hard side light versus our dashing lead, Harry Leadkey, is... (laughs) Side note, Harry Leadkey is almost a running joke for me in this podcast now. (laughs) But he's usually lit more frontally, right? Yeah. And so they're already establishing character with directionality. Yeah. Yawning's obviously the sort of big egg-shaped bald head. is (laughs) fascinating to them. And they're lighting it from the sides and putting a little bit of a shadow down the middle of his face sometimes. Yeah, it is very distinctive on him. And as far as, so to look forward to the Hollywood stuff, just because I think it's an interesting comparison, how did this further evolve with Rosita in the films that came after? Because Lubitsch fully embraces the three-point way of doing things and then kind of iterates on that with a variety of cinematographers. Rosita, I guess, his American films is the one that looks the most German, but I think that's Mm -hmm. partly because of the set design, you know, the huge set of the prison and so forth. But yeah, he's doing the same kind of thing there. It does feel more similar to this film than any of his other fully surviving Berlin films, except a lot more basically consistent and disciplined. It feels like the crew around him made a big difference. I think you're right. It's in a way, it's sort of halfway between the German and the American films, but he's certainly gotten there. He's figured it out in a remarkably short time. I mean, there's only a year between these two films. He had made one film in between, but obviously he mastered it. And American critics and filmmakers and journalists and so forth recognized it so quickly. They were praising him to the skies from the start. He became 
what D.W. Griffith had been to American film the decade before. I mean, here's the father of the film, D.W. Griffith, and now suddenly everybody's talking about Lubitsch. There's that story in the Scott Amon book that I love where Griffith, incensed by the comparisons between passion and his work, books Birth of a Nation into a cinema to try and outgross it, and then fails because Birth of a Nation is apparently too long to book in the number of times it would need. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, you lose a screening every day or something like that. Yeah, and it's sad that what a lot of people, I guess, would say is Griffith's last best film or last good film is Orphans of the Storm, which is, came out this year. Another historical epic of sorts. From that point on, I don't know, some people would argue for some of Griffith's later films, but that, I don't know, it's sort of ironic. <laughs> One thing I'm curious about is the set design, because a lot of material I've read, including yours, has compared the set design philosophy of the Berlin films to the American films in that the sets for a lot of his more ornate like Berlin films, like again, Madame Dubarry, Anna Berlin, are designed in a very kind of maximalist way. Every corner, there's stuff and it's beautiful to look at. But then his philosophy changed. And I'm curious, especially how this film fits into that, because this almost seems like, again, a halfway point. In general, German cinema had very busy sets. I mean, if you see fairly ordinary films, not necessarily by Lubitsch, but from this same period, you see these very busy wallpaper on the sets, lots of little details. And yeah, this is quite different. I suppose it's partly because they're copying pylons from Egyptian temples, which are quite simple in shape, and they're pretty much always the same shape. And they avoided actually putting all the reliefs on the front that you actually get on Egyptian temples. So it sort of, in a way, dictates that it has to be simpler than your ordinary sets. You don't have a lot of columns and curly cues and the sorts of elaborate sets that were used in those two earlier films. The set that really stuck out to me, and it's maybe my favorite composition of the film, is The Judgment. It's the scene where the dead judge the pharaoh. And it's this beautiful but highly simplistic room, right, where it's dominated by this one seated figure in the middle. And then there's a row of statues behind, but the walls are mostly barren. It's a set designed for macro compositional lines rather than repeated forms and patterns, which I thought was very striking. And it's odd because in an actual Egyptian interior, you would have the walls just covered with stuff, Mm -hmm. (laughs) painted reliefs and all these fancy inlaid scenes and statues. So in a way, they're being untrue to their source. I watched this on the Blu-ray that has the Munich Film Museum and the German Film Archive kind of restoration. And it's gorgeous, but it does reveal the fact that there's a lot of very obvious flats in this movie (laughs) where the walls very clearly, they're not any materials, I think, that would have been used in the era. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, they would have had stone and they would have had mud brick and that would be it. Mm -hmm. I mean, they would take the mud brick walls and plaster them and paint them, but... Yeah, it was pretty simple building material. Maybe plywood less so. One other element that kind of intersects with the growing American influence on Lubitsch here that I think to me, and again, this is me kind of trying to look at the film and deduce from it, are the performances still feel quite grounded in that kind of pantomime style as opposed to Lubitsch's later work in the U.S. And I'm thinking especially of Emil Jannings, who I love his work here. I think this is my favorite of his performances for Lubitsch up to this point. I was hooting and hollering when he came back, all covered in mud. At the end, we kind of jumped out of our seats and we're like, we're now cheering for the villain because you got to hand it to him. But he's at his full arms with flailing, hammy best here. Where was, and I feel free to like opine on Jannings in this because I'm curious to hear your thoughts on him, but I'm also curious as to where Lubitsch was at in his development as an actor's director here. I think we know he was already acting out 
the scenes for the actors mm -hmm. so that they knew exactly what he wanted. And I'm not sure how much it helped them, but yeah, he had given up acting pretty much by this point. He would, um, you know, show them exactly what he wanted, but you do have a lot of, well, a lot of people would call overacting here, very mm -hmm. emphatic acting. And I think Yanning's never lost that. No. I mean, when you think of him in The Last Laugh, he's doing some pretty hammy stuff there. I think of somebody like Werner Krauss as a more subtle German actor of that period. So you have a contrast. I mean, this is not what all German actors do. And Henry Liebke is <laughs> a bit over the top in this film. That aren't they all? They are. And although it is interesting for me, Harriet Liebke and Mill Yannings are such a contrast because I always am of the opinion generally of that any kind of language of acting or any sort of, you know, basically any art, there's the what language is it speaking, right? In this case, it's the language of pantomimic arms flailing. I'm doing jazz hands right now, uh, listeners. And within that, there's such a bandwidth of success, right? Like I look at Ozzy Oswaldo or Emil Yannings, and I think they're just, they're incredibly expressive and entertaining in how they employ that language versus Harry Liebke. I always see him as a pouting five-year-old. Yeah. yeah. Well, it's possibly a deliberate contrast because you see Yannings moving relatively slowly most of the time and just holding a pose now and mm -hmm. then. He's not running around the set, whereas Liebke barely stops moving at all, ever. He's just very, very jumpy. So it, it might be a deliberate characterization thing that Liebich wanted. I think that's very possible. I would say that my reaction, it might just be to my own, like, it's the star thing, right? Everyone who comes into a movie brings their baggage. And at this point, after overdosing on Harry Liebke for a whole lot of movies, he comes with his own baggage of me being, oh, no, here comes, like, the Miles Teller of his time. This film was interesting to me. It kind of falls into a loose surviving trilogy uh, that I'm going to retroactively call the Emil Yannings Sex Pest King trilogy, where, you know, he plays Henry VIII, Louis XV, and the Pharaoh here. And they're all actually fairly similar characters in certain ways. But in this one, I feel like he hits this fever pitch. I don't know. He's so boisterous that you end up getting carried along by sheer force of charisma. And that's kind of this whole film for me where I'm not sure it works fully as the functional drama, but it's just such a spectacle and it's Lubitsch is going so hard with it <laughs> that I just, both times I've watched it since starting the show, I've found it quite beguiling despite itself sometimes. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it is a fun film to watch in a way. I'm not sure everyone would agree with that, but <laughs> I, in general, like German films of this period. I mean, if you looked at the list of films I watched in preparing to write the book, it wasn't just Lubitsch films. I watched a lot of German films. Oh, yes. Ordinary films. And I don't know, for some reason, I like them. I mean, they tend to be slow, slower than most people would appreciate for this period. Slower than get in French films or Soviet films or Hollywood films, certainly. But, well, as to acting... Um, Lubitsch had worked with these people before, so this is obviously what he wanted. He'd worked with them a lot. As a fan of kind of that performative style of acting, I'm all for it. <laughs> One thing I'd like to go into a bit, too, is prior to reading your book on this, I had not been all that familiar. I mean, like virtually all people with a passing interest in German cinema and, you know, Hollywood cinema that era, you know, we're all kind of familiar with the direction of influence from Germany to the U.S., the how German expressionists all came and changed Hollywood and never the other way. And in your book, Herr Lubitsch Goes to Hollywood, you make the argument that perhaps the more dominant influence ran the other way, that American film influenced Germany. What's the kind of dynamic of how that is widely understood? And what is the truth there? Well, 
as you say, the standard story is the Hollywood people saw things like The Last Laugh and Variety, and they saw the swoopy, glidy camera movements and were just bowled over by that and started using that kind of thing. And if you watch films from the late 20s in Hollywood, you get a lot of weird camera movements. Flesh of the Devil, for example, there's a scene where there's a long table with a bunch of military guys sitting at it having a banquet. And the camera has been put on a little elevator that runs down the middle of the table. You know, it's not sitting on the track on the table. It's being hung from the ceiling. They tried all kinds of things because they were inspired by the Germans. But that's pretty much the second half of the 20s. The first half of the 20s and the late teens is when the Hollywood films are influencing the German films. And you get the introduction of the continuity style, you get shot reverse shot a lot increasingly in the 20s. You get the three-point lighting and the sort of toned-down set design and all the different things that I talked about in the book and that Lubitsch had really picked up on so quickly. And really, if you watch a lot of German films from this period, from the late teens and then from you know the first half of the 20s, you just see this transformation of German cinema. So it's kind of like first the Germans are the influencers and then they start doing crazy things like Murnau putting the camera on a cable, hanging it from a cable for the last laugh. And, and those films get shown in Hollywood. And in fact, supposedly the last laugh was shown over and over in private screenings at Universal. They had the distribution rights and people would want to come in, cinematographers, filmmakers from other studios, and they would come in and watch the last laugh. So, yeah, I think that's about the point when it starts, 24, 25 and obviously the flow in the other direction started much earlier, didn't it? And that started almost immediately after the First World War. Yeah, as soon as they started seeing American films, which the embargo didn't end until 1920. So it makes sense that Lubitsch would see this within a year he's making a film that looks like it came from Hollywood. By the mid-20s, German films really, in general, look like Hollywood films. And I think Murnau probably picked up on this as well fairly quickly and long to a certain extent, although you certainly don't see it in Die Nibelungen. But I think the Mabuse films have a sort of an American feel to them. You brought up in passing something there that I think is really key to all this, that you're focused on kind of the average German film, right? Where we tend to, in hindsight, focus on a lot of almost exceptions. Like you make the point that most German films in this period were not the expressionist films that we tend to talk about now. They were things like Madame Dubarry, historical epics, kind of comedies, that sort of thing. And that looking at those will maybe get you a better idea of the standards of the time. Well, that's one approach that David and I have taken, I think, pretty much for our whole careers, which is the idea that you look at the norms if you want to talk about people like Dreyer or Ozu or Eisenstein, because otherwise, how do you know? what they're departing from. Mm -hmm. And we wrote our book, The Classical Hollywood Cinema, partly so we could talk about Ozu and Eisenstein and so forth and say with some authority that they are departing specifically from American norms and coming up with their own systems, especially somebody like Ozu. It's interesting how this kind of slightly distorted idea of especially, I find, Berlin cinema in the late 20s and the mid 20s, I still see it everywhere. If you're on Letterboxd and see all the reviews of like Lubitsch's later comedies in Berlin, there's a lot of them that just say like, I had no idea that directors in Germany were making comedies at this point. <laughs> you know, <laughs> it's because they're like, oh, wow, everything was in Caligari. I think that kind of misconception still really holds, especially with this one period in time, which is interesting. Yeah. And the early sound films are something we tend to think of. But 
I just wish there were decent prints available of the Congress dances or Three from the Filling Station, which are absolutely charming musicals. And they're not the kind of dramatic things that people think about, even for the early sound. Yeah, it's, I mean, the most, I mean, I think probably it's, we all think of, yeah, the pep stuff and like the early sound longs and stuff. Mm-hmm. As if everything made during that period was just to fulfill Krakauer's thesis. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yes, well, that's one of the first things one has to do is just throw out Krakauer's thesis. <laughs> it's been interesting. Krakauer is definitely like intersected with this show quite a bit. I mean, he has, it's famous if you're a Lubitsch fan like me, the kind of critique of Lubitsch's nihilism in his own words that kind of dogged his reputation a little, um, at least among film scholars. Basically made the argument that Lubitsch was inherently nihilistic because he sees history as a function of essentially the wiles of a few aristocrats, right? And that, you know, kind of comedy and dancing and joking for Lubitsch is the same as murders and tortures. Actually, Krakauer was the first book that I ever read on German cinema, and I was 20 years old, just taking my first film courses and getting interested. But to me, that just sort of all washed over me. I didn't care about that kind of interpretation. To me, it was just a way of getting to know what the German films were that I needed to go out and watch. So it was kind of a launching point just to get a sense of the history and what the important films were. So I can really ignore that. And it doesn't make any sense anyway, if you look at something like Shop Around the Corner. It's an interesting thing, kind of looking at a director who really exemplified the popular cinema of an era, but not necessarily the current imagination of that era a hundred years on now. Yeah. Interesting little divergence there, because, I mean, Madame Dubarry made more money than, like, basically any of the major German expressionist works. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, yes. So a question I have for you, actually, and I usually ask this at the beginning, so I might plop this in the beginning, is what fascinates you about Lubitsch in particular? What about him moves you or speaks to you? Well, I guess it's partly because comedy is one of my favorite genres. And the first Lubitsch I ever saw was Trouble in Paradise. So I thought, my God, this is the perfect comedy. It's just brilliant. And I tend to like his comedies more than his more dramatic stuff. I also find that he's fairly uneven. I mean, I can't say I love all his films, but the best ones for me, I really love. But working with Criterion, I've gone back to two of his films that I didn't think all that much of when I first saw them, which are To Be or Not To Be and Clooney Brown, which I did supplements for, for Criterion. And seeing them again, I appreciated them a lot more. I mean, I remember thinking that to be or not to be was a pretty minor thing, and it was kind of silly, and same with Clooney Brown, but they turned out to be really good films. And I think, you know, the more closely you look at them, the better they turn out to be. I mean, some of them are just obviously brilliant, but there's a subtlety to them, and something like Clooney Brown is just so unusual and original that it takes some appreciation and some patience, I think. So I'm glad to go back and explore the films that I was you know, less enthusiastic about to start with. I find it so interesting that there is an absolute pattern happening when I ask people that question. And generally, it's people love his pre-code sound stuff. Trouble in Paradise is the most commonly cited, I find, but also designed for living. Occasionally, The Merry Widow, which The Merry Widow is my favorite of his pre-codes. And that's not a knock on the others, but I just love that movie. And then there's the other camp of which I probably a more part of, which started with his later sound films, like To Be or Not To Be Your Shop or Ninochka, and then slowly got into Lubitsch's pre-codes. And 
there's a definitely a difference in the, it's almost like there's a strand of his DNA that different people like <laughs> and kind of call home. Like for me, To Be or Not To Be was the first one I saw. And immediately after watching that, I went, that was one of the best movies I've ever seen. But those are kind of the two camps. I've yet to meet someone who has gone, wow, I saw the doll and I was in love with Lubitsch, which I'm waiting for someone to say that because that movie was incredible. I love that film. I, I love all the Anzia as well, the comedies, which I did see fairly early on. I guess I must have seen those at that conference I mentioned at East Anglia back in 83. They showed a lot of Lubitsch. And yeah, The Doll is a great film. Before I wrap up the recording, I want to say we've had a few people on this podcast who have written things, but I really can't stress enough how much I, this is me talking to listeners now, how much you listener ought to read Kristen's book on this. It is one of the fastest 200 pages I've read in a while. <laughs> and it includes incredible just insights into not only Lubitsch as a formalist, but the formal history, the cinematographic history of early Hollywood and Berlin filmically. It was one of the most rewarding things I've read in a while. And please read that. I will, again, point it out in the show notes. Kristen, is there anywhere that listeners can find you and your work online if they want to read further? One place would be David's in my blog which is called Observations on Film Art. So if you just Google our names and that title, you will find it. And it's been going since 2006. So we have well over a thousand entries, <laughs> but we have a very good search engine on it and the list of topics and that sort of thing. So that might be worth exploring. And well, it's hosted on David's own website. So if one goes over there, looks over in the left margin, there are a bunch of free online things that you can find, writings of ours. I suppose the classical Hollywood cinema is the most enduring thing that we've written. It's still in print after it came out in 85, so it's uh, still out there. Thank you so much, uh, Kristen, for coming on the show. Well, thank you for inviting me. Of course, anytime. Next week, Stefan Joisler joins us to discuss The Flame. Griffin Scheel was our dialogue editor for this episode. Head over to www.ernstcast.com for links to the various public domain films we'll be discussing this season and other resources such as show notes. How Would Lubitsch Do It is a production of Moving Image Agency. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate and review us on whatever podcast service you happen to use. We'd like to acknowledge that this podcast was produced on the unceded territory of the Musqueam, Squamish, and tsleil peoples. 